production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Paul Clark, the Regional President for PNC and a proud City Club member. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, an annual event organized in collaboration with Downtown Cleveland Alliance, the State of Downtown Address. People get pretty exercised about public transit. It can inspire some of the most passionate debates in our community, second only maybe to the Browns draft. In Cleveland and across the country, there is renewed interest from residents to be near urban centers. American corporations are increasingly leaving suburban office parks in favor of city centers and urban neighborhoods, drawn by their energy, vibrancy, diversity, but perhaps most importantly, because they are seen as key to attracting and retaining top talent. Many in the emerging younger workforce desire walkable communities, access to public transit, and the kinds of entertainment options you can only find in urban environments. Cleveland is no exception. Fueled by over $7 billion of development over the last 10 years, downtown Cleveland is Ohio's largest downtown in terms of jobs and residents, with more than 100,000 jobs and more than 15,000 residents. Tourism is also increasing with more than 18 million visitors coming into Cuyahoga County in 2016. This development is increasing demand for transportation into and around downtown, while the city struggles with competing priorities, improving public transit, diminished parking supply, the establishment of bike lanes and racks, safe, walkable sidewalks, not to mention disruptive technologies such as car sharing, ride-hailing apps, and self-driving vehicles. On top of that, there are studies underway to consider a possible future in which downtowns across the Great Lakes region are connected by Hyperloop technology. So given all that, what transportation methods and users uh, should cities prioritize? How are those decisions made and how should they be made? Can cities adequately meet the transit needs of residents, businesses, and tourists alike? We've assembled a group of regional and national leaders to share their perspectives. Here to steward the conversation is senior IdeaStream host and producer Rick Jackson. Mr. Jackson is an award-winning journalist with more than 35 years of experience as a television and radio anchor and reporter. He's been on air in all 50 states and in 40 foreign countries and is currently the host of Ideas and News Depth for WVIZ PBS. I now turn the program over to you, Mr. Jackson, to introduce our panel. Thank you, Paul. Always good to work with you. Appreciate all the PNC does. And thank you to the City Club for having me back. I really enjoy moderating these debates and these conversations that are really so intrinsic to what we do here in Cleveland. Our panelists for this discussion do represent a collection of talents, both local and national, with common interest of making downtown Cleveland all that it can be, which is really what we all would like it to be. With me today, Grace Gallucci, the Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, 
Kate Jonkus, the former deputy mayor of Seattle, currently the owner of Place Strategic Consulting, and Joe Marinucci, president and CEO of Downtown Cleveland Alliance. Thank you all for being here today. As always, I will lay the groundwork for our discussion with questions that do provide these panelists the chance for both overview and some depth in the conversation. Later, the audience gets its chance to speak, sometimes with more specificity about situations that directly impact you and the things that you would like to know. Let's get started, though. Kate, you're the guest. I will go to you first. The overarching question, how do we create this 21st century downtown we want when we're pretty much using building blocks that were created in the 18th and 19th centuries? Is that a problem specific to legacy cities like Cleveland, Ohio? Yeah, but those buildings, which are just extraordinary, had a great opportunity to tour some of them. Um, you know, Seattle's all new, and the 70s and 80s weren't the greatest, you know, for beautiful buildings, especially <laughs> office buildings. Um, so those buildings are your future, because it is your history and your culture, and by reusing those for residential, um, which you are doing, um, it really gives you a leg up on other competitive cities. So I think that you're well positioned to be, I see a lot of residential happening in downtown, which I think is one of the success indicators for the future. We are seeing demographic patterns that follow a rebuilding of the city core. Transportation in many cases was an afterthought. People figured it didn't need to be set until there were more people here. Now there are people coming here and in a rush. Grace, how do we assess what needs to be done for our future even though we're trying to accomplish this in the present? Sure. Um, first, I do want to acknowledge uh, that this is the Leonard Ronis um, day for uh, the City Club and that Leonard Ronis was a very special person to many of us, including myself. I got to know Leonard Ronis when I worked at the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority long after he had left, but he still, um, as part of his work, took on uh, people like me who were at that time very young and um, impressionable, and I thank him very much and I thank his family for uh, sponsoring the event. Mm -hmm. So your question. <laughs> Want me to ask again? Please. <laughs> <laughs> With all these people coming into downtown Cleveland right now, we're trying to look to our future, but we've got to do it in the present. So um, one of the functions of the NOACA um, organization is to plan. And granted, primarily we plan for transportation, transportation infrastructure, but that can't be done without taking into uh, context the built environment that is already there, um, as you mentioned, legacy cities, um, land use is important. And so looking at what we have, I think we've already started adapting the downtown that was created 100 plus years ago to what we need today and to what we need in the future. I think the biggest change that I have observed is that we are now um, much more inviting for residential. Right, so we had a very large population of employers and employees in the downtown area, and now we are commingling them with residential. So that actually requires a different kind of infrastructure and one that I look at as more equitable. Um, so certainly we have um, multimodalism uh, that is part of our plan. Our long-range plan looks at where we are today and where we want to be, what folks are saying. We developed a 20-year long-range plan last year that will take us there. And I think multimodalism is the key, keeping that within our plans, making sure everyone has access. We talk about the various facets of transportation that we have. When Paul was speaking, he listed a whole bunch of things we'd like to see happen. I don't know how many of you were watching the elections outside Ohio, but last week in Tennessee, Nashville voters rejected a $5.4 billion plan that would have built 26 miles of light rail, four new rapid bus lines, four crosstown bus lanes, 
19 transit centers, a suite of improvements to signals, sidewalks, bus traffic, bike infrastructure. Joe, funding strategies for all these elements, it's critical. Cleveland can't do all of that. The state certainly looks like it doesn't want to do all of that. So take the temperature force of people here in Cleveland. Do we have the wherewithal to spend that kind of money to make that kind of improvement? Well, I, I can't speak to, to what happened in, in Nashville. Obviously, right. that just occurred in the last few days. But if you step back, uh, public transportation has to be part of our transportation mobility plan. And we've long known and working with RTA and Joe Calabrese and his team, as well as with Grace's team, that this, that in many ways has to be the centerpiece of how we approach it. Downtown, for example, uh, each year 10 million people take buses into downtown Cleveland. Four million people take the trains into downtown every year, and a million people use the rapid, or excuse me, use the trolley system. So if you think about it, that infrastructure is critical to us. So we need to think, um, and not necessarily look to Columbus for answers, although we will lobby with our, our colleagues at RTA right. very aggressively to try to increase the legislature's commitment to public transportation. But we need to think in terms of how can we uh, take it uh, uh, and make a solution that, that's locally based and think outside of the box, whether it's within Cuyahoga County, whether it's a regional strategy that we need to begin thinking about uh, as part of this, because obviously downtown Cleveland uh, is the centerpiece of Northeast Ohio, and in many ways we have to think in, in those terms. So I, I think we're at a point now where, again, the momentum in downtown Cleveland is dependent upon us being very creative and thinking out, outside of the box in terms of funding strategies. And Grace. I can back that oh, up okay. because, um, you know, in Seattle, we figured our economic opportunity was dependent on us having a lot of mobility options for everyone. So we're the ones who passed in our region a $54 billion initiative to do light rail, bus, and a bunch of other options. We also, in the city, passed a $60 license fee tab to put transit everywhere so that everyone was in a 10-minute walk of good transit, and most of the big lines were 15 minutes um, schedule on average, and we just passed $900 million to do roads, um, bikes, and sidewalks. So um, we just said our economic future depended on this. Um, our economic growth depended on it. So um, we took a deep breath and we did it. I'm going to answer that a little differently. Um, and it's often that Clevelanders don't look at ourselves as being leaders or as having something that others are wanting. I'm going to say that the transit system that Nashville was trying to get and put on the referendum, we already have. If you value the infrastructure that is in Cleveland, we've already got a 27-mile rapid. We've already got BRT. We already have a tremendous uh, bus service and network. And so the money that was already invested um, over the last century is certainly a value today. We as Clevelanders need to recognize that value more. And if you want to quantify that value into money, quick calculation in my head says over the 50 years or so that um, uh, RTA has been in existence as a regional transit system, a 1% sales tax was passed in 1974. That has generated over $15 billion. So it doesn't matter what they're doing out there. We actually have what they want. We need to capitalize on that. Okay, thank you. We're talking largely in a sense here about people, whether it's the train or the bus or the car coming into downtown Cleveland. Kate, I'd like to talk about some of the people who are already here. They walk to work, they shop downtown. We all know from the RNC, the word walkability has come into our language now here in Cleveland. But it's not really that easy to do. We live in a you-must-drive kind of society. How do we change the mindset, cater to heels, not wheels? Heels, not wheels. I love that. Mm -hmm. 
So um, we knew, because downtown Seattle's constrained like you are by water, freeway, and mountains, we weren't going to get a lot more roads there or exits off the freeway. So if we were going to be able to grow jobs and grow residents, we had to shift everybody into different modes. And um, my excellent public sector partner's idea was, let's make parking so expensive and horrible that people be forced to use the bus. We said, OK, not the right attitude. So um, we said, what we're going to do is we're going to make every option except parking your car so convenient, so attractive, and so many choices that people will choose that. So that's what we focused on. We tried to figure out the customer mindset and figure out what do they need and let's see if we can do it. And we have shifted um, our mode from 50% drive alone to downtown of the 280,000 jobs to 25%. And a lot that's been increase in bus because the bus frequency and availability has been so great. Um, increase in walking because of the people who are living downtown. And uh, we're only at 3% bike. We want to get to 10. And so we're trying to do bike lanes, which are tough and controversial. But that's when we'll get that number up. And Rick, to, to add to, to, to that discussion, you know, part of our challenge downtown right now, again, we've seen, uh, uh, as Paul indicated in his opening remarks, a lot of investment in downtown. But we're now at a point where parking is, is becoming a question. Uh, years ago when we started the Alliance, the first question we would ask a company that we were talking about investing in downtown was, is it clean and is it safe? And I think through the investment of property owners downtown, we've now overcome a lot of those perceptions. And, and I think the people, potential investors, feel good about that. But the first thing they're talking about now is parking. And if you think about it, we've, in, uh, we've brought new companies into downtown. The housing that's being developed right now essentially is adaptive for use for buildings that historically did not have parking. So we now have to uh, think about strategies to, to uh, support that. If you look at the hospitality industry, we now have 2,000 more hotel rooms uh, uh, in downtown than we did a few years ago. Those visitors, uh, and if you figure three to 4,000 a day, have to park or use valet services. So the strain on the system, I think, is going to increase. And we have projects like Playhouse Square, which is taking a surface parking lot removing that from the inventory and essentially building a, a beautiful 34-story tower, which we want to see. So for us, we're at that point now where we need to think about how do we uh, incent alternative uses so that, uh, again, we can continue to grow, but not necessarily be in a position where a lack of parking becomes a deterrent. Is there a responsibility on developers here to do better by parking when they build these buildings? We've got city councilmen right here. Should the city step in and make legislation that requires a certain number of spaces per floor? Well, I would actually take the opposite position, which is how do we create a continuum of accessibility and mobility options that allow people to make decisions that would include public transit, that would include, uh, for example, a, a better uh, a grid uh, from a, a bike perspective in downtown. For many of you know, it's very difficult. If you, you can go from all the way to University Circle, take a beautiful uh, bike route to East 18th Street, and then it stops. Uh, and so we've got to figure out those alternative uh, uh, ways of uh, providing, uh, again, choices uh, to our customers, which, which are the people that live and work and visit in downtown Cleveland, and think about technology in the future and how technology can help us adapt it. And you know, parking is very expensive. If you give develop at 40 grand to 50 grand, which is what we're doing in underground parking mm -hmm. you know, in Seattle now, a space, um, if you give the developer a choice <laughs> and they feel confident and their banker feels confident that you can do that building without providing all that parking, they will absolutely make that choice. And so now we're getting residential buildings with like 0.6 per unit of parking, and they're not even filling. Um, so it, you can get there. And again, if we continue yeah. to push the housing side and the job side, and yeah. by the way, if you, it, it's, uh, it's interesting when you look at our most recent uh, quarterly report, which, which we just released, you'll see that we've created about 8,500 jobs since 2010, mm -hmm. and at the same time, increased the residential population. Well, a lot of those residents work 
downtown, so they don't need a car. They're simply walking to work. So if we can continue to, uh, to create that balance and the momentum in, in terms of additional investments, we reduce the need for, for additional parking. One of the things you mentioned was technology. Kate, you were telling us about the apps that Seattle has, things that could be really exported to other cities, some of the infrastructure we may have in place, but tell the folks about some of the things that happen there that really have eased the crunch on residents. So, and one of the apps you have here, because I just looked up this morning, um, Mego. So when you look on the Mego app in Seattle, um, and you're in one part of town, need to get to the other, you will see all the um, all the bike share, which is not is dockless bike share. We have three big bike share companies. Those bikes are everywhere, and some are e-bikes. You'll see all your transit options. You'll see all your car share, car to go, reach now, et cetera, et cetera. You'll see the taxis. You'll see the buses that you can have. So you have a wide. You'll look and you'll see a wide range of choices. And someone was telling me the other day, um, I decided e-bike was going to be the fastest to get from one end of town to the other because on the map, there was all the e-bikes e on the map, and there was one just half a block away, went picked it up, put it on his phone, and was gone. So it's given that kind of choice. If you live in downtown, and you can say, I don't have a need to have a car, because I know I can pull up that app, and I'll see a whole bunch of cars from different companies that I can go and pick up right now, so I don't have to have my own. Okay. Grace, we have both state routes and interstates running right through downtown Cleveland, and yet it seems that ODOT operates autonomously. How key is their involvement in change and decision making, and how do we get buy-in from a state agency for a local problem? Sure. Um, well, the Ohio Department of Transportation is a partner of NOACA. They do have a seat on our board. We work very well with them in terms of project. For example, they are uh, working with us on the Hyperloop, which is a very um, advanced form of transportation, and they're looking to the future with us. When you talk about state routes that are in uh, the downtown area, I will point to uh, Euclid Avenue and ODOT, uh, this will be probably going past 10 years ago, invested $50 million in the BRT because it was a state route. So they recognized that they had some responsibility and it was an opportunity for them to invest in something that they wouldn't normally invest in, which was public transit, because of course the BRT is running on a roadway. Um, other, I think there can be better partnership with um, ODOT and local governments, and particularly with NOACA, on how to utilize some of NOACA, um, sorry, some of uh, ODOT's funding, uh, such as the urban paving program or some other um, funds that they have, that they may make different kinds of decisions at the state level and perhaps treat all of the different regions in the state the same, and we can have a little bit more flexibility. So I would suggest that um, they perhaps may want to uh, look a little bit more at local control, look a little bit more at flexibility of funding, recognizing that we in Northeast Ohio have much more severe winters than those folks in uh, Cincinnati. So I think partnering to recognize uh, the differences and the unique nature of what we do and then moving forward from there. Um, otherwise, I think uh, ODOT's done a good job of really working with us on the long-range plan. In fact, I'll put in a plug for um, ODOT's long-range plan, AO45. Uh, uh, we have a public uh, meeting next <coughs> Tuesday with them in partnership. So if you've got things that you want in that plan, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people want public transit, a lot of people want bicycle facilities, a lot of people want something different, come to that meeting. It's 5.30 at the Shaker Library. You can take the train to get there, you can drive to get there, you can <laughs> bike there, or you you can walk there. Really well done. <laughs> you mentioned the H word, Hyperloop. I'm sure if we didn't talk about it, the audience would in a few minutes. So uh, there is something happening there. People think, oh, that's pie in the sky. But you actually have things going on shortly. 
Absolutely. Um, there's probably a handful of us in the country that have actually begun studying the feasibility of the Hyperloop. Now, mind you, not the feasibility of the technology. The technology already exists and has existed for a long time. Uh, the utilization in this commercialized application is what makes it unique. But I leave those to the astrophysicists. I leave those to the NASA folks and to the Hyperloop folks. When you deal with what we're working on, we're working on the public policy, the regulation, the safety, and determining whether or not this is truly a good way to connect cities. Um, as Paul said, we could connect Cleveland to Chicago, to Detroit, to Milwaukee, to Buffalo, to Syracuse, down to Columbus or Cincinnati, and then we could furthermore go east coast and connect Boston uh, to New York, to Philadelphia and DC. So we really have a unique position here in the Midwest that can have um, an enormous amount of economic power if you look at it as a mega region. And it is, it's, it's happening. We currently have um, an RFP that closed. We selected an engineering firm. Uh, the engineering firm will go to the board for approval in June with the actual uh, work being done in July. And then a year from then, we will have the results, which will tell us all the questions you might have. I've heard them all. We'll have those questions answered to be able to say, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? But I will say, we've already gotten tremendous support from the community, from folks who say, yes, we should do it, or at least look at doing it, and yes, why not Cleveland first? Okay, why not? Joe, we talk about population all the time. We're at 15,000 downtown now, pushing for 20, hopefully by 2020. If we have difficulty, if we stumble in the transportation aspect, do we then stutter in growth of downtown residential life? Well, I believe we, we, we would stutter not only in the residential life, but, but also in terms of our ability to attract more jobs into downtown. Remember, the growth in, in residential has to be accompanied by a job growth, and, and we understand that, and our, our business development team is working hard to bring additional jobs into downtown. So if you think about it, if we create the type of downtown that, that, that we're talking about that, that has the ability to provide choice across a, 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 a spectrum of mobility uh, opportunities. And by the way, mobility, you, you talk about walkability, uh, part of that is the perception of downtown. You know, I think we've made improvements, but for those of us who walk between Playhouse Square and East 9th Street know that we still have a little bit ways to go in, in, in terms of improving that. But when you do that and people are more comfortable walking, more comfortable biking because there's dedicated bikeways, more comfortable using technology because of the, the various applications we can create, we know residents are gonna have a better experience living, working, and playing in downtown. So we know it goes hand in hand with placemaking, which ultimately is how we attract more residents to downtown. Governor Kasich yesterday signed an executive order allowing companies to test autonomous vehicles on all public roads in Ohio. I'm trying to picture driverless cars you know, if I'm at a Euclid Avenue restaurant, how does it know where to pull over? How does it understand the bus lane is a no-go? Things like that. Does that, does that frighten planners, Joe? <laughs> um, I, I became aware yesterday, as, as, as many of us did, uh, about the governor's uh, uh, legislation. And if you noticed in the press release, they talked about um, certain steps that uh, uh, need to go through a proposal process so the community, you know, which streets are, 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 are going to be the tester streets, what are the parameters of the testing, uh, so the answer is I think we need to be in a position to embrace the opportunity that it creates, but at the same time make sure we as a community are, are cognizant of where that testing is going to occur and what are the parameters surrounding it. Uh, and having said that, I would envision a, a point maybe in the future where, again, you can, uh, those autonomous cars are driving down Euclid Avenue and can stop at yours truly or go all the way down to public square. 
Nice way to work the names in there. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that I don't know what Seattle has in terms of interstates. You talked about being trapped between the mountains and the water before. Um, we have a lot of interstates that come into downtown and they just kind of leave us here. And Grace, we have all these multi-lane roads that dump us onto old, old streets. That's got to be a problem that has to be considered and worked on. Is there a long-term feeling that NOACA has for a way to better manage this? Um, sure. Uh, the inner belt project is something that um, we have been working on probably for 50 years since the day it was built. Um, and so certainly there's, there's areas that have already been improved and that we need to continue to improve. The Opportunity Corridor essentially will be an extension to 490 that never happened. Mm -hmm. Um, but more importantly, when you look at the wide boulevards that we have that are a result of um, perhaps planning in days past where you might have needed that much capacity, um, I, I think NOACA is trying to work with the communities to better allocate the excess capacity. So we're looking at building uh, bicycle lanes, we're looking at building midway corridors down uh, the, the center of a uh, street where a streetcar used to go. So down Superior Avenue, for example, we have a project that we are working on with the city of Cleveland and with the YMCA and the county that says we're going to try and put where the, literally where the streetcars used to be, down the center, a uh, multi-lane and it would be a protected lane that bicyclists and pedestrians can use. And so by using the excess capacity, I think that gets us much farther than um, having to build new. That space that you would have dedicated for those people, that certainly takes safety off of the table. Is Correct. that something you think would really boost the usage we have for people walking, for people segueing, for people biking? Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I know repeated surveys and repeated research, research shows the number one uh, reason people don't ride bicycles more is the safety concerns. And um, if they're feeling safe in a space because it is protected, they will be more likely to use it. And I think as we're adapting downtown more to residential than just uh, from the employee-employer perspective, we really need to think of it as a quality of place that people are living in. And so thinking it now also as a community of residents and what do residents want to do when they get home from work. So it's not about the nine to five anymore. It's about what do you do in the evening and what do you do on the weekends? And it's not shopping, it's recreation. And what does that look like? What's been the history <laughs> for you, Kate? Well, um, we um, have a, a freeway that comes, you know, right through downtown that goes from Canada down to the bottom of California. So it's really kind of busy. Um, and we only have six <laughs> north-south streets in, in downtown. Six. six. Mm -hmm. So competition for those lanes between the buses, the bus rapid transit, the streetcar, the bike lanes, and the sidewalks are, it is fierce to, you know, who's going to get that mm -hmm. position. We don't have excess capacity like you. So it's been a series of very hard decisions and some more to come to, to get people to say, okay, we don't need that parking lane there anymore. A bike lane is going to serve us better as a community. But it's a, it's a process. Is it a process to get people to buy in? Yes, it is. But fortunately, um, there's tons of evidence around the country, and there's even evidence in Seattle that you know those bike lanes don't kill retail businesses. Um, you you know you still can be successful, and um, you you can your employees love it because they may want to bike to work. And it's been uh, working with downtown property owners and businesses. Um, I think people are coming around to the fact that if you have the best bike parking in your building, you have a bike lane outside your building, and you give everybody bus passes in your building, you're more competitive and you attract more the kind of employees that you want. Mm -hmm. 
Joe and Kate joined us on the Sound of Ideas this morning, and you took one call, Joe, from a very impassioned business mm -hmm. owner downtown uh -huh. who was saying, I can't get people to come to my store because there's no place for them to leave their car. Well, again, as I indicated this morning, I think part of our uh, part of the opportunity uh, in terms of what we're creating in downtown Cleveland, again, that residential-based growth is vitally mm -hmm. important to retail. But it doesn't help the folks who are coming to shop at the arcade. Well, it will it in will. time. Um, that's one of the reasons we very aggressively last year talked about a 20,000 residents by the year 2020. We know if we get to that level, if we get beyond the 25,000 residents in downtown, we create self-generating self retail environments. So the um, entrepreneurial retailer, like the, the ones most likely in the arcade, the, uh, the boutique retailers, will have access to people who live in downtown and in essence will will uh, take advantage of, of those retail opportunities. And, you know, if you step back, I mean, we're, we're celebrating the, the, the Heinen's and the beauty of the Heinen's investment. The arcade was a century ago, and, and it's a beautiful facility. So again, bringing residents uh, to downtown will help those retailers. And again, if you think about it, there's no easy way for us to construct additional parking surrounding the arcade, but that shouldn't be the goal. The goal is how do we create accessibility um, by uh, creating more people in downtown Cleveland. Do our current transportation issues risk alienating tourists who may come here and have a bad experience because they can't get where they want to go quickly or they can't park and then they go back to Baltimore or Charlotte or St. Louis or wherever and badmouth us? Well, I don't think so. One of the neat things uh, I think, and our friends from Destination Cleveland are here, you know, and we work very, very closely with Destination Cleveland and a number of committees that, look, that are looking at the visitor experience and how do we improve it. Uh, and if you think about it, if we improve that, the experience for a visitor, we're by definition improving the experience for residents, employees, investors, and, and so on. So uh, I, I would look at it that we, in fact, have made great progress in that area. But we, we do have some additional challenges. We do have opportunities to create um, you know, some of the technology uh, opportunities that would aid in, in, in bettering the experience. We have opportunities to maybe, uh, again, if you think about it, uh, continue the investment in the hi uh, beautiful historic buildings in downtown. Again, creating that, that pedestrian uh, environment that people are gonna be very comfortable with and visitors obviously will, will enjoy. People don't go to Chicago. They say, oh, I'm never going to Chicago because I can't park down there. They don't mm -hmm. expect to. It's, it's the offerings that you have, the buildings, the, the, op the tours that you have. That's why people come. Sorry, Grace. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. In terms of the, 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 the um, shop owners, you could say something like, well, there is no parking on Michigan Avenue, and those store, <laughs> those shops right. do quite well. Yes, um, but, right. but, but to your point of a wayfinding, yes, it could, in fact, have an absolutely detrimental impact on mm -hmm. tourism, uh, whether it be for business or pleasure, if we don't um, really uh, very, very intentionally um, plan for a system that is easy to navigate. And in that way, uh, NOACA does have funds and has spent funds on wayfinding. Uh, we've worked with, in partnership, DCA and uh, Destination Cleveland that Joe already mentioned uh, to put some, pro and the RTA actually, to put some projects together that uh, make wayfinding a lot easier. Uh, we work with ODOT to do some uh, types of signage uh, that are broader based. And we've even developed an app that is the, uh, Byway Coastal app, and if you want to get on it, and it'll tell you how to navigate that and mm -hmm. have a beautiful leisurely drive or bike ride. I have to get that. Yes, get Sounds it. Good. It's on your phone. Okay, take a breath, kids. 
I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer at IdeaStream. Today we're enjoying our annual State of Downtown Forum featuring Grace Gallucci, the executive director of NOACA, Kate Jonkis, former deputy mayor of Seattle and owner of Place Strategic Consulting, and Joe Marinucci, the president and CEO of Downtown Cleveland Alliance. We are about to begin the audience question and answer period. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via webcast. If you'd like to tweet your question, please tweet us at the City Club, and our staff will work that into the program as well. Holding our microphones today are membership and customer experience manager Corey Eisler and content coordinator Bliss Davis. Can we have our first question, please? Hi, I'm relatively new to Cleveland, but I understand that uh, the downtown Cleveland Alliance was the leader and the, the spear point on the success and vibrancy of downtown Cleveland, led by Joe Marinucci, the board, and all the building owners. I just want to know if you'd like to comment on that. <laughs> That's a best um, uh, thanks for that question, Rob. <laughs> Obviously, uh, I, I will say this, uh, and I appreciate the, you know, what's happened downtown has really been a collaborative effort. We've really worked closely with our property owners, with our businesses, with the city of Cleveland, both the administration, Mayor, Mayor Jackson and his team, uh, city council, with Destination Cleveland, with Greater Cleveland Partnership, and many strategic partners. So all of us working together have really accelerated the pace, I think, that we've seen over the last few years. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least answer that question. Thank you. Oh, hi. Um, oh, thank okay. you for bringing up the walkability and the bicycling. Uh, my name is George Hahn. I'm uh, the co-host of the Downtowner podcast with Amy Eddings. And I'm a native Clevelander, and I boomerang back here after 22 years in New York. I live downtown. Um, I've had conversations with Joe, uh, and we've created some content about the walkability. Getting over here. I rode a bike over here. I couldn't find a place to lock it up. Uh, that was tricky. Uh, the environment for someone riding a bike over or around downtown uh, is generally unfriendly, sometimes flirts with hostile. Um, and the safety issue was brought up, which I really appreciate. When, if at all, can one, because I prefer not to take the sidewalk, I think it's rude, but safety is a concern. And after witnessing the New York situation with protected bike lanes, ridership did go up. And how long, I guess my question is, if or when, uh, when could we see some change in safer bicycling infrastructure in downtown Cleveland? Let's go to Grace first with that. Sure. Actually, I can tell you an initiative um, that both the city of Cleveland, um, in partnership with um, us and others, and with the leadership of your councilman, uh, Kerry McCormick, uh, we've begun developing a very integrated um, planning process that will look at where bikes should go, how they fit in, and all of the amenities that go with that. So I'm going to say you should expect to see um, a plan shortly. In fact, NOACA is also doing a regional plan, so we're doing ours for five counties. Uh, so certainly we should be able to get you downtown um, a, a lot faster. Um, so I think that that's going to happen. And to, when, do we, when do we make those improvements happening? Some of them are already happening. As I mentioned, the Midway, um, there's also Lorraine Avenue, there's a whole number of, uh, of other plans downtown, but I'm going to say that some of the things you brought up that should be simple, like locking your bike up, um, we can make that happen pretty quickly. I would say um, if we put our minds to it, the partners I've mentioned, we can get that done in the summer. Okay. Question from this side. Thank you. 
Hello, my name is Ian Andrews. I'm the executive director at Lakewood Alive. Uh, I spent my honeymoon in the Pacific Northwest and several days in Seattle, and it was a wonderful city. And I was amazed when I looked over the balcony at the Airbnb we were staying that I saw a highway uh, go underground and proceed underneath uh, the residential and commercial area. And so I wonder if you could please talk about how you were able to leverage transit as a tool for economic development by burying the highway, and then from the Cleveland perspective, how the inner belt has divided uh, the east side of downtown and our eastern neighborhoods, and is there the opportunity to consider actually building above the inner belt? I realize that probably sounds crazy, but it's being done, and I think there could be some ample opportunity. Kate first, and then Well, so then a, a couple things. So before I became deputy mayor, um, I tried to be Joe for 20 years running the Downtown Seattle Association. So I think I'm in 25 years now on that project to bury that highway. So at some point, it's just, I think, persistent wins out on every other technique in terms of getting things done. Uh, but we are burying the highway that goes along our waterfront and putting it in a tunnel under downtown. Again, we decided that access to our waterfront was gonna be our best economic development project that we could do for the next century. Um, we also, our convention center actually is over I-5. Um, and with Homeland Security and other issues, um, we've talked about widening the roads and you know extending the coverage over I-5. So that's still something we're in investigation now, but we would like to do it because that highway, just like yours, divides our city unnecessarily, and we would love to cover it. But that's, that's another 20, 50-year project. But. Grace. Uh, it's absolutely feasible. I've seen some plans and some recommendations from various groups on uh, what they would like. It absolutely is, and there's a lot of terrific plans that are being generated at the grassroots level that eventually make their way to myself and my uh, colleagues. It becomes a matter of priority, and what do we want to do first with the limited resources, okay? That's one. But I'm not going to say that that's the excuse um, or that that's the limitation. We've got to be bigger. We've got to think bigger. And so can we do things simultaneously? Yeah. Why, you know, why can't you build a, a, an upper and a lower highway? You know, you've got upper, upper Wacker Drive, Lower Wacker Drive in Chicago. You've got different ways to better utilize the existing and future uh, roadways. The one thing I would suggest in terms of priorities, though, is that what we have that works, although there can be improvements, let's leave those alone until we do all or a lot of the other things and then come back and put the, uh, the cherry on top of the cake. Rick, if I could also uh, note that there are efforts, uh, for example, it, what we normally refer to as the trench, but if you think about it, the campus district, for example, one of their priorities is to uh, improve their north-south connectivity through 22nd Street. And again, there is some plans, and, and right now it's a little further down the road in terms of track funding, but we're trying to accelerate that. So if you think about it, putting a cap at that location to create a green uh, opportunity and a green infrastructure that would essentially uh, better uh, you know, uh, uh, unite the north, north side of the campus district and the south side of the campus district. So uh, there are groups that are very, very active in, in trying to uh, accelerate the pace of some of these discussions. Sure, keep the faith. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, that we would be spending as a region right now probably a hundred million dollars a lot of that coming from NOACA on bicycle facilities I mean things change and and you get the transportation system you ask for you get the one you deserve but you have to ask for it thanks again hi as a Cleveland uh, former Cleveland City Council person who worked and pushed hard for bike lanes and now to see that the city of Cleveland is starting to put them not only downtown but uptown. I want to just piggyback on what he's just talked about. I just came back from my second city of San Francisco. And Kate, this goes to you. 
they now are doing the scooters. And Uber has just bought one of the scooter companies. And the hostility from those scooters now is similar to the hostility of the bike lanes. What do you think that, how do you think that we get to a conversation of, we got cars, we have buses, we have bikes, we got scooters, we got people that walk, and that these lanes are safety and protective. How do we get to that conversation, not only here, but around the entire region? Well, one way to answer it is um, a lot of the you know, highly educated uh, techie millennial folks love to have scooters and bikes. And so you'd say, okay, if you had a bike lane in front of your building, you might have a better chance of getting those millennials. And for the businesses in Seattle, it's all about who can attract the best talent. So we've had a pretty strong bike transit related to talent argument we've been able to do. I have to say though, you know, we have, um, I don't know what they're really, I call them the free range bike programs. We don't have docked bikes, that failed for us. We had to acknowledge that we spent a lot of money we weren't gonna get back, but now we have bikes all over. And uh, for us, the more alternate modes we can have, the better. Yes, now we're gonna have a big regulatory issue because I'm afraid, you know, if bikes start to impede people with disabilities on the sidewalks, I mean, a lot of stuff comes up. So we're gonna try to figure out how can we have as many bike choices as we can. The scooters are a different thing. You know, they have this long stem this way and this way, and when they fall over on the sidewalk, they really are a hazard. The bikes. Um, they're everywhere, but they're upright, you know, and on a uh, kickstand, so it hasn't been a huge issue, but I can see it coming. But, you know, it's just another, um, we want to have as much transit as possible. We're, I'm willing to put it all out there, and then we can figure out if we have problems, how we're going to have to regulate if we need to. But I'd rather have more than start worrying about the regulation now. Joe, we have somewhat of an older group of people living downtown than what Seattle might. We don't have Amazon. so. Do we have a difference then in the number of bikes, the percentage of bikes we would have actually on our roads? Um, well, I, I don't think we have the number of bikes that Seattle has. But, but again, I, I think uh, we were in the early stages of working with organizations like Bike Cleveland to really, again, create the network. Mm -hmm. And again, as, as we've talked today, you really do need those dedicated bike lanes and, and people need to be able to access them uh, and the, the security that comes with them. Uh, to, to grow that use in downtown. So, so again, I think we, we've done a good, good job in the periphery, uh, but as we say today, and as George mentioned a few, a few moments ago, we need to now improve the core in terms of that availability and that access. Question here. Yes, good afternoon. My name is William H. Nick, Sr. I'm the president and business agent of the Amalgamated Transit Union um, of um, RTA. And as a former driver for the RTA and the current president of this employee labor union, we understand the budget challenges the RTA faces. During the negotiations, we have been told that the RTA isn't planning to seek a tax to address these concerns until 2020. We are told that there will be significant service cuts in the meantime, while its proposals to cut the pay and the benefits of his workers, throwing the spouses of his workers off of their health care. How does the RTA meet its obligations to provide good jobs to Cahoga County residents without cutting service where each dollar saved through service cuts costs the county in terms of residents unable to get to work, unable to get to their doctor appointments, unable to get to school, Get your question. Not and college, it almost through right now, <laughs> sir. <laughs> increased pollution and increased traffic congestion. 
I'm also interested in feedback regarding the strategy of waiting one to two years to give the voters an opportunity to decide whether they want to continue funding the RTA at its current service levels. Clearly, we don't have an RTA person up here, but each of you works closely with RTA. Anything that you can say to alleviate some of his concerns? Joe Calabrese is right over there. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Joe is not wearing a microphone. <laughs> I mean, I can say the, 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 the issues that the uh, questioner, Mr. Nix, brings up are valid. They are. And um, a transit agency never wants to cut service and never wants to raise fares. Those are the things you don't do. But certainly in financial or times of financial crisis, uh, decisions have to be made, and the best way to get to those is consensus-based, you know, win-win or less pain, less pain. Um, and I know that the RTA is working on that. In regard to the, you know, should you do a tax increase referendum now or later, um, I don't think it's so much the timing as it is, are you ready for it? Um, have you made your case? Have you done your analysis of the system? Do you feel that if you're going to go out to the voters, you've uncovered everything and you've done everything you possibly can? So I think it, it's a balance there. And the workers, the bus drivers, and the mechanics are, um, are the most important asset RTA has. So certainly they don't want to hurt them. So it's really going to be a, a nice balancing act of getting all of it together. And again, if you want public transit, then you have to support public transit and you have to ask for it. GCA, or DCA and RTA, very much partners. Mm -hmm. You want things to work well together, so you, you kind of have to support both sides, which must be a difficult uh, tightrope to walk. Um, well, we do, and, and, and again, we, we clearly understand the issues and, and, and the concerns that, that, that were raised in, in, the, in the preceding question. Uh, but we also recognize that we as a community need, need to do the due diligence, as Grace is pointing out, to kind of fully understand what all the options are, fully uh, think through what the long-term solution is, because what we don't want to do, I think, at this point, is do a, a, a short-term Band-Aid uh, and then put ourselves in a position where we've got to deal with this again in a, two or three years. So again, to the, to the discussion we had earlier about us as a community, as a, a city, as a region, kind of taking this long-term approach, I, I think that's going to be critical. So the answer is yes, we'll be at the, at, uh, at the table, and, and we will uh, uh, work with RTA on, on what, again, the process yields as a, as a long-term solution for us. Thanks for the question. Next. Kate, you mentioned a really large <clears throat> amount of investment happening in Seattle. Can you speak to any programs or policies that the city had to make sure that those investments were equitable, that they were connecting lower-income communities with the job centers? Um, a couple questions there. Um, we did a lot of, in fact, there's a, a um, one of the things that at Deputy Mayor is a, in charge of performance and metrics. And so we made sure everything that we voted on those three big measures, there's a dashboard up on the city website that says how much money we're spending, are the projects on time and on budget, and um, due to in crazy construction costs there, they are not on budget now. It's a big issue that we're grappling with. Um, we um, also, our first transit measure failed. And we had to go back to the voters a second time. And one of the things we added was a, a discount card for low-income people. So when you went and got food stamps, you could get a discount ORCA card, too. And I think that's one of the things that helped it succeed, because equity was a big issue for us. So um, it takes a lot of um, maintenance to make sure that money gets spent well. And it's still something that we are really challenged with making sure it comes out. Because we promised X, amount, X miles of bike lanes. Um, you know, 300,000 uh, more hours of service in Metro. And if voters don't get that, they get really testy. 
Grace, you mentioned the Opportunity Corridor a little bit yeah. a while ago. Could you play into her question there, the idea of using roadways to connect neighborhoods and not isolate neighborhoods? Sure. Um, and I speak uh, back to my original opening comments about land use and transportation. So the best way to deal with equity issues is not to chase, have the employee chase an employer way out to the fringes of a region. Um, not only is it not practical for the employee, because usually they're lower paying jobs, um, it takes a long time to get there by transit, um, and, and really, you need to think about quality of life for those employees, too. You don't want them spending two hours or so commuting. You want them to spend it with their family, um, you know, helping their child to read or, or, or do something else productive with their time. Um, so we need to really think about and promote the reverse. Let's get the employers next to the employees. So put the responsibility on the employers to get close in terms of giving access to jobs. And so what does that mean? It really means more transit-oriented development. And transit-oriented development, again, is something that lots of cities are seeking. They're putting, they are putting in train systems so they can get transit-oriented development. We've got train systems. Let's put the transit-oriented development in place. And with the Opportunity Corridor, I think that's somewhat how it's fitting in. You will have a lot of vacant land, or we have a lot of vacant land out there um, that has been underutilized for decades. And now's the opportunity for um, employers to move there and give folks in the neighborhoods and near the train system uh, that runs parallel to their access to those places of employment. So I think that's really bringing the employers and the employees back together again. And you do see that in the projects that we're beginning to uh, really support. Rick, if I could add, um, from the Alliance's perspective, we're, we're very sensitive to that issue. And let me go back to the momentum we've had uh, on the housing front. A lot of housing that's being built in downtown Cleveland, as I think many people in the room know, are market rate housing. Uh, and the reality is that going forward, um, we know that we're going to have to create a more diversified portfolio and include affordable housing in the matrix if we're going to, again, grow the type of downtown that we'd like to see and do it in a socially, socially equitable way. Uh, so we've actually uh, put together a, a steering committee with our uh, neighborhood-based partners in the community, and we've brought on board a consultant team that's now looking at it. Uh, we brought a group out of uh, uh, Philadelphia called Urban Partners, and the goal is to look at the housing demand uh, that exists post-20,000 residents in downtown. In other words, how do we get from 20 to 25, but also how do we diversify our housing base so that, again, we have uh, an opportunity for uh, individuals across the broad spectrum uh, of the community uh, uh, living and, and working and enjoying downtown. I have to say one of our transit and mobility strategies was a very aggressive rezone of downtown. Uh, we zoned for height, you could do 400 feet in downtown, and we zoned for residential. And when you build residential, it's a variation of inclusionary zoning. You have to put a certain amount per square foot that goes into a fund at the city for affordable housing. You have to have a pretty, you know, rock an economy to kind of make that work. but. Um, it was the only way we could think of to get some equity into that growth. Thank you. Next question. Hi, Debbie Berry. I'm a reformed traffic engineer, as many of you know. <laughs> um, Kate, you alluded earlier to using more of a carrot than a stick approach to get people interested in choosing alternate modes. Can you touch on maybe some of the incentive programs that the City of Seattle or other public agencies may have put in place um, for individuals or companies to try to get people encouraged to try different modes and uh, how successful that was? Well, we um, did a whole series of things because um, we thought it is absolutely about the customer. And if we want to have sustainable mobility use 
people are going to have to want to do it and not want to be forced into it. So we um, partnered with our metro agency, um, our downtown association, um, actually sells all the bus passes to businesses because we figured we had better connections with them and we knew what they wanted better. And we thought that that was not a line of business that met, that our transit agency was naturally inclined to do. So we did that. Um, so everyone, at, I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a total bus geek and I have always ridden the bus to work. And I bet 90% of people now are tapping a card instead of trying to put you know 12 quarters into the thing. So uh, that was a big one. One is getting the metro to have digital signs at every stop so that when you're there you there's a whole list of all the buses and it tells you exactly when it's going to arrive. Um, we have an app one bus away which was uh, done by a University of Washington college student who was later stolen by Google. But I can sit in my office um, and I pull I can pull up any stop in the city and it will tell me the buses that stop there and when they're due. Um, and if it's behind or if it's head or what. So that's, that really helps. Those convenience things are very important. All the buses now have a digital in the front that tells you what the next stop is. So you don't have to like, you can never hear those announcements on the buses. And you know, with bus wraps now trying to get more money, you can't even stay out the windows anymore. So to see the street signs. So that is very helpful. It's those little things that make a difference. We also discourage monthly parking and uh, daily parking. Because if you're in the, if you buy monthly parking, you think I should use it, you should use it or you don't get your money worth but if we can get people who drive every day to just take an alternate moth one day a week we've really won because that saves an incredible amount of carbon and it frees up a lot of spaces on the road so we really tried to think through the customer experience for all of our modes and what barriers could we get rid of um, that were kind of you know not a tremendous amount of money but um, so that people would want to use the mode so it's kind of like and we still have a long way to go in that but that's our how we've been thinking about it we just put in place an app for that here in Cleveland. Very cool. Ohio Commute. By the way, Rick, if I could uh, interject on, on that question, because we, we also track what's going on across the country in terms of some of the experiments and best practices. Uh, to the south in Columbus, actually next month, um, they are starting a pilot program uh, where they worked uh, in their central business district to, uh, in essence, uh, use dollars through an inlay business improvement district. They, they Raise, raise some additional philanthropic money. They raise some public money through their uh, regional uh, planning uh, uh, organization. And essentially what they're, what they're doing is they're giving to the private uh, employees in their central business district free bus passes. And their goal is to reduce by about 10% uh, the level of usage of their parking, uh, if you think about it, going back to the monthly parkers. And, and again, they had very similar challenges to what we've had in terms of, again, from a business development perspective, having enough parking in the portfolio, having the same challenge with the cost of building structured parking. So this is a very interesting experiment. We've, we've talked to the team down there. Um, they're very excited. So we're going to watch very closely how that incentive uh, changes uh, uh, the mobility and the accessibility and the transportation uh, uh, challenges that downtown Columbus is facing. And it's just what you learn from being close to your customer. So we were, you know, employees would give all, our employees would give all their employees bus passes. And then we find out some people weren't using it. And when we asked them, they said, look, if my kid gets uh, sick at school, I don't have time to take the bus there. So we added a benefit that says, okay, if you've got a bus pass 
and you have an emergency, you can get a taxi. You know, you get so many of those that month. So it's like little by little mm -hmm. trying to figure out. And we also and, do and this. And by the way, I yep. will say, when yep. Joe Preston said his, <laughs> yeah. uh, his business team actually provides the same benefit uh, if you work with uh, the RTA team here. So. And that yeah. really works. Mm -hmm. And then we found people know. were, they didn't know how to take the bus. So we actually do classes. Mm -hmm. We can say, okay, <laughs> this is exact. you know, how do you find your bus schedule? How do you find your bus stop? How do you see the bus come? Um, they're intimidated, you know, so what, I'm afraid when I get out, I'm going to be embarrassed. Okay, here's how you tap. Here's how you know if your tap doesn't work. This is, I mean, those little things have made a big difference. And, and we do very similar. When a company's uh, coming into downtown, we actually reach out to RTA. We re reach out to our yep, city we partners. We do uh, uh, yep. forum presentations. We bring their employees in. Uh -huh. We talk about public transportation. Uh -huh. We talk about those options. And it does help. It help, yep. helps relieve the stress really of someone going from a suburban setting uh, uh -huh. into a downtown setting. So when Weyerhaeuser moved from DuPont, they had 88% of their Weyerhaeuser, big timber company, they moved to downtown Seattle 80 because they thought they'd get better workers if they were 88% of their people drove, 9% do now. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great. I think the classes are a great idea. Yeah, yeah. they are a great idea. NOACA uh, staff, listen up. We're going to start yeah. doing classes. <laughs> How to ride the bus. Yeah. Our hour has gone very, very fast. Kate, 12 second answer. Is Cleveland on the right track? Yes, you are, absolutely. It's all about getting jobs and residents downtown, and that helps make all your other stuff happen. Well, you got three seconds left, good. Today, <laughs> we are enjoying our annual State of Downtown Forum featuring Grace Gallucci, Executive Director of NOACA, Kate Jonkus, the former Deputy Mayor of Seattle and owner of Place Strategic Consulting, and Joe Marinucci, President and CEO of Downtown Cleveland Alliance. Today's forum is the Leonard Ronis Memorial Forum on Transportation and Planning, made possible by a generous endowment gift. Thank you, Lauren. We're delighted to have her and the family with us today. Presenting sponsor for today's forum is E.V. Bischoff Company with additional support from PNC. Thank you for your support of City Club Programming. Oh, wait, I've got more. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Baker Hostetler, Cuyahoga Community College, Destination Cleveland, Downtown Cleveland Alliance, Falls Communication, the Metropolitan of the Nine Hotel, NOACA, and the Unify Project. We thank you all for being here today. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Gallucci, Ms. Junkus, and Junkus, and Mr. Marinucci. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, hit the bell. Our forum is adjourned. <laughs>